Welcome to the Digital From Day One podcast. Our aim is to build a bridge by creating content that will pique interest, spark conversations, and encourage further innovation that will ultimately build a more informed and prepared pipeline of learners headed for the 21st century workforce. Hi, my name is Brendan Dickerson, and joining as always is Joelle Nelson. Today, you'll be listening to a discussion with Triad Architect partner, Brent Foley. Brent, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. So what we like to do here, Brent, usually is, you know, if our guests that come on, we want to just dive right in and give our listeners just a little bit about your background and how, you know, you got into the field of uh, architecture, what propelled your interest in this uh, career. So I grew up here in Columbus, uh, east side of Columbus, um, refugee in No Bixby by Independence High School, if you guys are familiar with the area. And it's a, you know, it's a very interesting neighborhood. Uh, it's one of the few places in Columbus that's actually pretty diverse. Columbus as a city is diverse overall, but it's very pocketed and segregated in many ways. And so obviously I grew up uh, in that neighborhood being exposed to a lot of different people. And, but, you know, the neighborhood was largely working class. You know, I didn't necessarily know that architecture was really even a a direction um, until there was kind of a unique situation that happened that that changed my, my path. I made the transition from public school to St. Charles after eighth grade. My older brother had had an experience in public school that wasn't great in high school. And I mentioned St. Charles to my mom in passing. And she was like, yeah, you're going there. So it kind of changed my dynamic um, where, you know, I went from friends whose dads were, you know, electricians and plumbers and things like that. that not that there's anything wrong with those professions, but to all of a sudden having friends whose dads were attorneys and, and engineers and architects. And so I became friends with uh, Matt Price, and who lived at Bexley, where I ironically live now. And his dad was an architect, and his dad was one of the founders of Triad. During all of this, as you can see my comic books behind me, I was always interested in art, things like that. I attended classes from a very young age at Columbus College of Art and Design, the Saturday morning art classes, and just was very interested in the creative fields. And architecture seemed intriguing to me because it was both science and art, you know, and, and problem solving and using creative thinking to solve problems. So I would talk to Dave about that uh, when I was in high school. Uh, and he encouraged me to, to pursue architecture. He encouraged me to look at the University of Cincinnati uh, in particular. Uh, UC's program is one of the better programs in the nation. And um, they also have a co-op program. And after that, he offered me an internship. So after I graduated high school, the summer between high school and, and going to UC, I became an intern at Triad. And you know, there was a level of trust already there. He knew me, he knew my character. Um, so he allowed me probably to do some things, more things than they would allow interns to do back then. And uh, it gave me a great start. Uh, and then I went to college. I came back the next summer, back to Triad, but then I got engaged in UC's uh, co-op program. And I, uh, I uh, co-opted in New York, I co-opted in Boston, I co-opted in New Jersey. My dad's from New Jersey, uh, so I was fortunate to be able to live in um, my grandmother and, and work in Manhattan, which is, a di- you know, it gave me the uh, financial means to be able to experience that, uh, whereas there was, otherwise I may not have had those financial means to do that. So I did that, and then I graduated. Uh, uh, Cincinnati at that time had been trans- transitioning from a Bachelor's of Architecture program, which was a six-year professional degree, to a four-plus-two a bachelor's of science and a master's of architecture. So I decided to opt into that program. So I came out with my master's in 2004. My mom, full circle, 
She was working uh, over here on James Road uh, at an insurance agency next to the old Super Duper. You guys are familiar with the east side at all. And she happened to be Dave's insurance agent. And so my mom had worked. Uh, she was a stay-at-home mom. And then she'd actually worked in the cafeteria at St. Charles. And then she went back and got her insurance license later in life. And uh, she was Dave's insurance agent. And he found out I graduated. And he said, hey, was Brent looking for a job? And I had been sending portfolios and resumes out to San Francisco because that's where all my friends were going. I was like, all right, I'll go to San Francisco. And, but not, I wasn't being very aggressive, which is honestly a little unlike me. But uh, I came in for an interview with Triad. It was like, it was like coming home. You know, it was, it was a great experience there when I was there before. A lot of the same people were there. Uh, and it felt like, to be honest, like I was interviewing them more than they were interviewing me. Dave gave me an offer kind of on the spot. He said, how much do you want to make? I'm like, what do you, what do you usually pay? He said this. I said, okay. I was like, man, that was terrible negotiating. I should have like thought about something very differently. Um, so I started there and I came back uh, and again, there was trust. Um, and so they knew me and threw me into things probably more quickly than they might have others. In 2006, I was given the opportunity to take a, a quick leave of absence for six weeks. And I went to India for a rotary program. And when I was in India, I was really taken by the nature of the developing world, what poverty in a very intense level can look like. However, in India at this time, they were just kind of dealing with the liberalization of their economy and having the emerging middle class. And so I was really taken by the idea of what is a business owner's role and all of that. And so I came back kind of with a fire lit under me to get involved. And I got involved in a lot of things, but simultaneously several project managers left Triad for different reasons, all in good terms, but there was a, the, a void and they're like, right, you're back. You're a project manager. And so I just started taking on project management work, you know, and then I quickly kind of kept moving up. And then in 2009, Dave was looking to retire and his oldest son had gone to architecture school at Ohio State and out in Seattle uh, and was moving back and Dave was interested in bringing Zach into the partnership. And I knew Zach. I didn't know him as well as uh, his brother, Matt, but I knew Zach. And Dave took me out to lunch. And this was, this was 2009. So like, I'm, I'm like, am I getting fired? It's the middle of the recession. Uh, and he's like, hey, what do you think about becoming a partner? Zach's coming back. And I said, well, maybe Zach and I should talk about that. <laughs> so Zach and I got together. Uh, we talked about it. Probably made the decision quicker than both of us should have. But I think that's the way most entrepreneurial decisions are made. And we jumped in and we, we both became partners. And that was 2009. So that was 11 years ago. Uh, since that time, a couple part, other partners have retired. And Zach and I are basically the managing partners. Uh, Dave and Clyde still have silent shares in the company. And Bob Gibson, who's one of my mentors, who was a partner, is uh, still works with us as a project manager. Um, as well. He kind of retired his shares and came back because he likes the work. Um, and yeah, so that's how we got where we got. And now I, here I am, uh, you know, 11 years into being a partner. Uh, I just turned 40 back in March. And uh, it's, it's a really interesting journey, uh, especially in the world we're in, thinking about two things. Number one, we're facing potentially a, a economic downturn again. And, you know, uh, the interest in social issues that I gained in India and the involvement I've had in community over the last 11 years has, has evolved during this time as well. So it's kind of a kind of an interesting moment where I feel like we're kind of back at a very similar moment to where I was 11 years ago when I first became a partner. Uh, but obviously, I've learned a lot more since then. That's an amazing journey uh, to go from 
comic book loving intern to partner, right? That's, uh, <laughs> you know, and with the same company from high school to that level. I mean, that's, that's unique in and of itself. So you at this role of partner, Triad Architects, can you elaborate on your role and what, you know, what the everyday process looks like for you? That may be different now, of course, uh, with, with our sure. current state affairs. Um, and, and, and even with that difference now, what the role that technology in particular might play in what you, what you do and how you all operate? Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. So uh, the role of partner for me has evolved over the years. It's evolved, number one, because we've had partners come in and out of the partnership and people have shifted roles. My main role when I became a partner was really um, what we call more operations, which is the project side of things, right? It was managing projects, managing standards, managing quality control, all those types of things about the projects kind of at the highest leadership level. Uh, and myself and Bob at that time were managing that together. We had a, we had a partner who left in 2012, who was doing the business development, sales, marketing work. And so at that point, Zach and Bob and I looked at each other and I think they both stepped back, which meant I was the one who had to take over that role. Um, and, and so I did. And so I moved from very project focused to being more of the face uh, out in the community and being the person trying to drive new work and uh, making sure that we were aligning with clients along the way. And so that was my focus for a long time. And then Bob retired and I kind of took up some operations things again. And then we started to grow uh, probably three years ago, four years ago, we started to see an uptick. And then two, three years ago, we've got a really a big spike. You know, we kind of, the firm at one point was 30 people during the recession, we went down to five and now we're back up to 22. And so there's, there's been some ups and downs. So the nature of the role has allowed me as we grow to, to start to delegate, to bring in new people to delegate things. Because as it's, as you're starting up and you're building, you're really doing everything. I mean, everything that needs to be done. But uh, now we've got some people to help. So, you know, I have a director of operations. I have a director of business development who, who manage and lead that. So really I see Zach and I kind of sat down and figured out, okay, how do we, uh, help with this. And so I'm, I'm kind of accountable and responsible for the vision of the company. Where are we going? Uh, what do we see our markets to be? Who do we want to help? Zach is the more of a financial mind. So he kind of helps, helps me think about how that looks financially. We've, we've recently learned that both Zach and I are visionaries. So we have to figure out how to work with each other, uh, which takes a lot of trust. But then I'm also very much responsible for the culture of the company, uh, which I take very seriously. And to be quite frank, we took, a, I think, a cultural hit because of COVID. You know, as I've reflected over the last month or so, there's a big difficulty when you're trying to push culture when everybody is working from home. You know, so we went all of a sudden from working 100% in the office, but to everybody working from home, and we did it over a weekend. And so a couple technology things that helped us were, were Zoom right? And teams and kind of that, both those formats we use. So that was the first thing, just making it, making us able to meet. The, the lesson I learned was don't schedule eight Zoom meetings in a day simply because you don't have to travel between meetings because you're going to be <laughs> absolutely exhausted. Um, but that allowed our team to collaborate. It allowed our teams to actually collaborate better in some instances with our clients. So that was a plus. Um, but it made it very hard for me 
to feel connected with the team and understand the pulse of what was going on at the company. You know, we also, I was dealing with myself and my wife working from home with my stepdaughter. So we had to navigate challenges of childcare, uh, which made my time and my focus sometimes during the day, perhaps not on the company as much. Um, and so um, it was interesting because I think there was some major challenges for me in leading the culture of the company uh, while our team was using Zoom in very innovative ways. The other software we use is, is TeamViewer. So all of the, the, the software for drawing and modeling and things is very, software, is very hardware intensive. So what TeamViewer is, it allows our team to literally log in from a laptop into their, um, their desktop at the, at the office. They get to use all that computing power uh, of the, the desktop computer and not lose uh, any of that while using their laptop. So with Zoom, they were also then, we were also then able to bring people to meetings with the client who before we wouldn't be able to afford to bring. You know, you're not going to bring four people to a meeting because that's going to be costly. We're, you know, we're hourly, to, we're using hourly rates to figure out how we're, we're profitable and all those things. And so now all of a sudden we're on Zoom. So everybody can log into the Zoom meeting, be with the client. And rather than have to talk to the project manager, who then talks to the client, gives feedback, who brings it back to the, 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 the team, the team just jumps in, they work, and the project manager will say, so-and-so, you're up, they'll come up, they'll give information directly to the client, the client will give feedback, and then they can jump off, back off and do their thing. And they can listen in the background to the other thing to understand the context of what's going on. So that was huge. And then because they're on TeamViewer, they can actually like bring up like we use Revit is one of the softwares we use for, it's called uh, for building information modeling. We don't just draft anymore. We model these things. And so they could bring the model up on the share screen function and the client could be like, well, what if we did this? And they could like, okay, do, make that change in the model and show it to the client in real time, which was also super powerful. So it's kind of interesting, the opportunities we were getting from how we do business with our clients, but at the same time, the limitations it was causing for me uh, and trying to push and grow the culture. So it's, it's kind of a weird double-edged sword for us, but we're trying to figure that out. We're navigating it. I think the first thing we had to do was recognize that that was a problem, uh, but we're working through that now. And I could totally uh, sympathize with you, especially with uh, Zoom fatigue. <laughs> I know, uh, you know most uh, workers uh, in this economy is definitely going through that uh, right now. One of the things that we also want to touch on a little bit, and I think you just mentioned, uh, was Revit. Can you dive a little bit more into um, what that software uh, is sure. and how to use that in your day-to-day? Because or- I'm antiquated, I don't use it anymore. That's a funny joke. Because I, feel it. I felt antiquated for a long time. What Revit, so, you know, the, the evolution of architecture. In the old days, and I was the last class at UC that they taught this to, we would do hand drafting. Right, hand drafting is a very intensive process, especially when you're doing technical drawings. You know, because if you mess up, you got to start over. Uh, and people would build um, actual physical models of buildings to show clients what the buildings would look like as well, or they would do perspective renderings and things with watercolors and things like that. And then uh, AutoCAD came along, and so what AutoCAD was was computer drafting. The advance there was when you messed up, the whole drawing wasn't messed up. You could just quickly change the part that you changed, but it was all still two-dimensional at that point. Simultaneously to that, people were developing software for 3D renderings, right? So they could build a 3D version of the model, 
um, to illustrate what the building would look like uh, in perspective with materials on it to the client, but they were still separate softwares. And so the process would be to sometimes build the model and AutoCAD did have some 3D capabilities, but you would usually Im import it out into another, another software to apply materials and render it. Somewhere along the way, somebody had the bright idea of, of integrating the two and it became what's known as building information modeling. And so they, they actually integrated the idea of drafting uh, along with 3D modeling, and then they added the database component to it as well. So now uh, when my people do drawings and say they draw a wall, the computer knows the construction makeup of that wall. They know that it's brick on an airspace, on this sheathing, on this size stud with insulation, with drywall on the inside. Or they can change those components with database information, right? And so then what happens is now you have one uh, piece of software that is basically a virtual version of the building. Uh, and it's, it's as smart as you make it. The more information you put into it, the, the more information it has. That model is basically a virtual version of the building and you can use it for the presentation drawings, use it for the, the technical drawings. And like, you're not just modeling like the way it looks, you're, you can actually take it to another level where you put the ductwork, the structural systems, the electrical systems in. And so you can identify places where when you were drawing in 2D, you, know, you might draw a duct going here and a beam going here and not realizing that they're in the same three-dimensional space. But when you're modeling it, all of a sudden you know that they're gonna hit each other. So you can, you can understand those conflicts earlier, whereas before, sometimes you wouldn't find those things, and sometimes you still don't find those things till the contractor's trying to build it, uh, but eliminate some of those mistakes uh, along the way. So that's, that's building information modeling, and Revit is, is Autodesk version of it, but it, it, it really changed the way we do things. You had to put more and more information into the model earlier and earlier in the design process. To expand on that a little bit, you know, we work in this area uh, with digital flagship that focuses a lot on mobile technology and things of that nature. Is there an aspect of mobile technology that is involved or even if there's not currently, is that something that you see uh, going forward, particularly now with the way you said that, you know, you're even doing uh, the interactions with your, your team and, yeah. and, and clients and things of that nature? Yeah, I think, I think there can be. So there have been uh, limitations, as we talked about, with the Revit model being a very big, all that information is a very large file. Um, so in order to host that on the cloud, uh, you have to have a very good connection, right? Uh, but there is software, uh, Enscape is a version of it that takes and kind of uh, strips out the information you don't need for certain types of things. And so a great example and we did this for a client recently, um, you can build 3D walkthroughs or virtual walkthroughs. Say you're doing a renovation project, you could build a 3D walkthrough of what the renovation might look like. Uh, and you could either have it like predetermined paths or it could be like a, like a first person game where you're walking through the building. And you could literally like stand, we were doing this for a library client out in uh, the Zanesville area. You know, we could literally stand in the lobby and move it around like this. And this is what it'll look like when we're done, or this is what it could look like. We actually did that with uh, the sales locally as well, the Franciscan Center renovation we're doing with them right now. And it helped us make some decisions because before when you're looking at it, you don't quite understand it when it's virtual, 
but if you stand and look at the virtual while you're in the physical and you're like, oh, that's why you want to take that thing and move it here, whatever it might be, it allows the client um, a better understanding of what you're doing. And likewise, if it's a building that's a new building that's not built and you're not doing a renovation, you can give a better experience of, of what it would feel like and look like to be inside the space. I think that some of the limitations with the way 3D modelings and things were done before is people always looked at it from like bird's eye. Well, how often do you actually experience a building from bird's eye? You experience a building from, on average, five foot six feet off the ground, uh, walking, right? And and so that how you see it when you're approaching the building, but actually as you're in the building is different than the way you see it in a technical drawing or when you see it in a bird's eye view. And I think the, the mobile technology allows you to bring that to the client. So we, when we interviewed for that, uh, we actually brought an example of that and like, one of the ways we sold it was I brought out my phone. We had on the screen a QR code. I scanned the QR code, which brought up the virtual model on my phone, I handed the phone to the, the interview committee and they just, they looked at it. They look, you know, they, they, uh, they were able to see what the building uh, was going to look like. And that's how we ended up winning that. Pro one of the ways we helped win that project. Yeah. So that's, that's an interesting application of how mobile technology uh, can assist with that. So that's interesting in, in terms of, because we always think of mobile technology as personalization for the owner of the tech. But what you're talking about is actually personalization of the experience right. for the people that you're trying to sell, which is right. takes it a whole another level beyond. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a kind of a take, a similar take on the ideas of augmented reality, right? And eventually in and Joel, you and I have experience with this too. You can do the same thing with, with a set of goggles or things like that and get virtual views of buildings as well. There's some, there's some technology out there for that. Yeah, but you're right. It's, yeah, it's about the experience, less about the device. Now, um, I am interested in, take a little turn, that's okay, how you could do the same thing for, for using the mobile technology and the augmented, tech, the augmented uh, reality to help in teaching, you know, a great example, an easy example to explain would be going to the to Washington D.C. And, and being able to pull up your phone and see the that this space was this this monument with this information about this monument. Or if you go to a historic site, you can go to different parts and use the GPS and the different things and be like, this is what happened in this moment at this place, which is very interesting to think about when we're talking about the state of the world we're in too, and trying to have a better understanding of history and place and all those things. So I see, I see a lot of opportunity. It's not for architecture, but for education around that. And, and perhaps, I mean, you know, that could be an interesting spot, how you also do the same thing for a building. You know, for instance, um, we did a project called Cedar Bog Education Center in Urbana, uh, where we highlighted green technologies in the building as an educational tool. And so, talk about how the solar panels work. We would talk about how the rain garden work. And we had um, panels, you know, um, that explained, oh, this is a rain garden. Well, you could have a QR code and you could bring it up and be like, oh, this is a rain garden. This is how it works. And, and you can hear some other articles on rain, on rain gardens, right? So I could see it experientially working that way in a building from an education standpoint as well to take that 
kind of to another level. So we have a lot of, you know, young listeners in the K-12 and also in the um, higher education realm. And one of the things that, you know, we uh, talk about a lot is the adoption of, you know, these different uh, mobile technologies. Um, so what, what are some, I guess, lessons learned or some advice you can give, you know, students who may be looking at, you know, architecture as a, a field of choice for them? A couple things. So architecture is about creative problem solving. And so if you think you might be interested in architecture, think about what you're interested in and what, what drives uh, your, your, your sense of wonder, your sense of learning. You know, are you driven more by working to figure something out, like a, a complex problem? You know, for instance, when you're, when you're building a building and designing a building, and it, architecture isn't always taught this way, but in reality, you have a client, you have a, you have a building code, you have a budget, you have a schedule, you have zoning code, you have a series of constraints that you're working around. And ultimately, there are aspirational goals to the project that are also a restraint. So how do you, how do you balance all those things? So I think that that's really what architecture is about. I think that we have, uh, and I know I'm speaking uh, to representatives from a university, uh, but I think we have a problem in academia in the way we teach architecture because we teach the design side of it as a uh, more esoteric or high-brow idea of art um, than a practical application of like project-based learning, right? Um, which is really what architecture is. It's, it's a project. So I think that um, my advice to aspiring architects would be to think about architecture in that way. Uh, and if you're interested in that, I think you would be very interested in architecture. And then as you take that to, you know, if you are able to secure an internship or a job, pay attention to what those people running those projects and those people figuring those things out think are important. So a real world example, one of the things we do is write specifications, which is like a book that says the brick will have this material properties, it'll be this color, the mortar will look like this, it's all the technical details when I was at Triad in about 2005, 2006, I saw that none of the young architects wanted to do that. And I saw that all the project managers were frustrated because they couldn't delegate that because nobody wanted to do it. And I said, I raised my hand. It's like, I'll learn to write specs. Um, you know, so, and I, all of a sudden I became invaluable and all the project managers wanted to work with me. The, the really cool part of this story that I love is we have a young intern right with us right now. Uh, that we connected to through the Eastland Fairfield Career Program. He's been with us as a summer intern. He's worked with us for the last year and he's going to Kent State next year. He's writing specs as an intern. Like, so that culture, we talk about, it comes back to culture, that culture of understanding what's important isn't just the sexy stuff. It's problem solving and understanding all the parts and pieces of the project is, is now being pushed all the way down to our intern. But I'm really excited about it that you know, we have lots of culture issues we're dealing with as a company, I think every company does, but that's going on, right? Um, we, really, we really focused and we said, no, we're a company that understands our role is to make our client's vision a reality. And whatever needs to happen is, is important to that process, whether it's exciting or not, you know, in the end. And you have to, you have to bring that mentality because the reality is, the other thing we realize is there's challenges to making that vision happen. So we have to face those challenges with our clients. If we try to not look at those challenges, we try to say, you know, they say, I want to do this. 
we could say, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Just do it. And then when the time comes, we knew it wasn't going to work. That's not going to serve them, and they're never going to work with us. Also, if we said, hey, that's impossible, they're not going to listen to us. And if we come in and say, hey, that's really hard, let's develop some strategies together and figure out how we might approach that. And then if we do solve it, they're going to trust us forever, right? And then we're just going to continue that process uh, moving forward. So it's, it's, it's something I believe in, but I also think it's just good business, right? Um, you know, to, to, to build trust that way. So that's, that would be my advice. Pay attention to how you can think critically about problems. Try to see the bigger picture and then look for what, what all the parts and pieces to go into a project and try to know them all be, and make yourself valuable. And, and so I want to kind of take something that you talked about there in, in listening to your clients and, and try to get them to the next step and, and kind of dovetail that with uh, this conversation around our current state of the world, which is very much impacted by uh, COVID-19 and mm-hmm. where it's done. And you've talked a lot about how that's impacted the way you work and and even how it's connected to your, your home life and all of those kind of things. But uh, one thing that uh, I wanted to dive into is something that you shared with me was um, uh, a roundtable discussion that you did with, with uh, education um, uh, folks uh, around the impact of COVID-19 on the education environment. Because the work that you do, I know you have a, a division of uh, triad that does like environmental design, uh, and, but you also do a lot with schools and, you know, and things of that nature. And so I thought it was interesting and I thought it was great that you all, that you kind of thought about that to, to go ahead and, and reach out and, and ask those questions. And, and some of the questions were, I mean, amazing. Uh, how can we contribute to providing equitable connectivity to all students, right? It's a yeah. huge question, right? Uh, how do we tailor student engagement on a, um, on a virtual platform, so on and so forth? And you wouldn't think about an architectural firm wanting to dive into that, but the fact that you did, I think, speaks to uh, some things. So if you can share kind of what you got out of it and, more importantly, how that might impact your work going forward. That's a that's a great question. So as I think one of the things we did very well during this process is we saw the challenge of COVID as an opportunity. I think because of the way we just described how we work with our clients, we we always try to see challenges as opportunities. It's just a shifting of your of your thinking. And I was struck with that particularly because of my work with camp, and we'll talk about camp here in a little bit with camp architecture. I saw how schools were connecting. With students, I was like, well, can we connect with students with our campers in that way? And that started an idea in my head. And so we did an internal uh, roundtable before we did the educator one. And then we distributed that information to our different folks. Uh, so if it was an operations thing we learned in that internal roundtable, I gave it to my operations team. If it was a business de- development opportunity question we learned, we gave it to my business development team. K through 12 is our main client. Um, so I was seeing and thinking, well, you know, part of it was my marketing brain. All right, let's get my clients that like me in a room with some of my people that I'm trying to reach out to, right? And like have them talk, talk well about us. Uh, so that was part of it. You know, I'm, I'm very honest in sometimes my motivations, but I know they believe in us because we think we're doing the right thing. So I'm, I'm happy to have them help us connect us to others that are aligned with us as well. And, and then part of it was like, I want to learn, you know, I want to see what they're, what they're, what they're dealing with. And so that was the motivation. And the way we formatted it was really 
uh, about taking a posture of learning to it. So I just posed some, I sent them some emails with some just like questions to, to try to try to um, prime the pump a little bit. So I just went when, one by one, let them give their thoughts. And then I went another round where they allowed them to kind of react to the things that others had said. And then, you know, then allowed a kind of a third round was anybody have anything less left they want to talk about. And it was obvious the things they were facing. Right. So, and it was so interesting because I had representatives from Columbus city schools on there and I had representatives from like big Walnut schools, which are very different in demographics, but they were facing the same problems in different ways. You know, in some rural areas, there's just not access to Wi-Fi, right? Um, or it's not of a quality to be able to do like what we're doing right now. In some more urban areas, there is some poverty, which is limiting access to Wi-Fi. Now, some companies were providing access to Wi-Fi, but from what I understand, if you had any debt with those companies, you weren't able to get that Wi-Fi, which is like saying, hey, you're hungry, but you can't have any food. <laughs> we're giving food to everybody except for the people that are hungry. Uh, it's basically what that says, right? Um, and, but like, it was kind of this interesting moment. It was like, well, here's this district that's in many ways very different demographically than this district, but they're facing the same problem. And here I am, I've got them in the room talking about it, right? Um, together and learning from each other. That particular thing is going to very specifically affect how we are designing Wi-Fi systems in their schools right now. So what, some of the things they were doing, some of the solutions were libraries and schools um, were um, broadcasting Wi-Fi into their parking lots. So kids could come if they had devices and download things and then take it back. Uh, or they could do some of the actual face-to-face -face learning that was virtual at that time. Um, but then we also realized that kids didn't all have access to uh, the actual um, devices, right? And so they had to figure that out. And so what's happening now is kids are gonna have devices, right? Um, so I live in Bexley now, and even here in Bexley, which is an affluent community, we've learned that there were kids who didn't have access to devices and didn't have access to, to Wi-Fi here in Bexley. I'm on the Education Foundation. The Education Foundation is, is fundraising to solve that problem in our community. Luckily, I live in a community where we've got resources to do that, right? But what does that mean for, a, so take it to architecture. What does that mean for a classroom? Do all the students need to be in the classroom at the time of learning? Do any of them? Can some of them, can some of not, can not all of them? What does that mean the experience with the teacher is like? What kind of space do we need to design that facilitates the things we learn from that, you know, and so that's, that's what's interesting to me. And then the other part of that too is, you know, I just talked about how I'm a believer in project-based learning and tactile problem solving and things. How do you handle like interactions with kids, you know, uh, short-term and long-term, you know, um, and can we use the idea that this highlights that these inequities are existing uh, pretty much globally in, in all communities, these equities are there, some higher or lower in different uh, communities and use that as an opportunity to eliminate the inequity, right? Or at least lessen the inequity. Um, and so that's how it affects the spaces. Um, it's interesting too. I mean, some, some offshoots of this, you know, 
Uh, schools have been creating security vestibules for a number of years because of the active shooter situations we see. Now schools are saying, well, should we incorporate temperature uh, reading devices into those, into those vestibules so that if somebody comes in, we can contain them there from a security standpoint, but it's also like a, cons a health concern, right? So we can take their temperature and we can do a screening before they come into the building uh, to, to help with our COVID policies. So there's some, some short-term and long-term effects that are going to be happening on the physical space just from that standpoint, but then there's also some um, philosophical learning things that the educators are having to face that we can help them through from how that looks in a physical space along the way. So I think that in order to understand our clients' issues towards their visions, we have to understand, we have, we have to understand what they're going through. And that's really what prompted that. We've also done it since with our municipal clients and we're doing it soon with a series of library clients uh, next month. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see the things we learn uh, in both those, those spaces as well. Yeah, if you don't mind sharing that too, I, I love that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Love, man, that is, that is awesome that you guys are doing yeah. that. And both those are on our blog now too. If you want to go to our Triad Architects blog on our website, you can see the results of the educator one and the municipal one on there. I'll be, okay. I'll, I'll, the municipal one was interested in a different way because what we ended up providing there that was a value to our clients is idea sharing. Um, the big thing that municipalities are facing is how do we deal with our economy, you know, in this, in, the, in our community, how do we safely open that? And we were having that conversation right before opening was happening again. And it was really cool to see them like saying, you know, for instance, Delaware had been doing uh, city of Delaware had been doing a street opening program where, um, where restaurants could, um, dine and extend liquor license onto the, the street. And mm -hmm. Dayton was like, how'd you do that? And so then they started talking to each other afterwards. Uh -huh. I just got out of the way. I let them talk, you know? Um, when I saw and, Dayton's, like Dayton got a lot of press for doing that. Yeah. 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 Uh -huh. So that, they were learning from each other, which is really cool. You know? Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Digital From Day One podcast. Make sure to visit our website at go.osu.edu forward slash digital day one that's the number one where you can find out how to subscribe more information about our guests and more information about our team as always we love to know what you think use the feedback form on the website or shoot us an email at digital from day one at osu.edu the one is actually spelled out here or simply give us a rating on itunes and we'd appreciate if you tell a friend about our little show here, too. There's more to come from our guests in this episode, so be on the lookout for that. I'm Joel Nelson, along with Brendan Dickerson, and let's continue to make the connections to Opportunity Stronger. Until next time, everybody.